This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. This is the Hindus in Focus podcast with a very special guest for you. I'm Sohasini Heather. Lisa Curtis is joining us from Washington DC. She's a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security or CNAS as it is known. Of course, Lisa has been uh, very famous in India. She served earlier as deputy assistant to the president and NSC National Security Council senior director for South and Central Asia really looking over this region uh, during the Trump administration from 2017 to 2021 uh, she was particularly involved in coordinating the South Asia strategy that was announced first in 2017 by president Trump and has been a key uh, a key person uh, on the Indo-Pacific strategic framework in particular the quad So thank you so much for joining us uh, Lisa and uh, congratulations on your new position Well thank you for having me it's great to be here I want to start with talking about the Indo-US relationship but to get to the news first there is news now of a real disengagement at the line of actual control uh, between indian troops and the chinese troops the pla uh, this comes after a very very tense year where i'm sure uh, in your previous position you were watching very closely so i do want to ask how are you and how do you think the us is really reacting to this disengagement uh, plan that has just been initiated at the line of actual control Well, I think if there is actual disengagement of the troops along the LAC, uh this is a positive thing uh from the US perspective. Uh the US has continually called for de-escalation of the situation and so this this would be positive. The problem has been of course that uh it's taken this long for an agreement to come. There has been several meetings of the core commanders even uh some meetings at the diplomatic level so it it has been a very long standoff since you know last may and but this would this would be a positive uh development if indeed it it comes to pass now you have been on the record saying that somehow the lac uh, standoff between india and china has changed both how the us looks at helping india in these situations as well as india's own openness uh, to looking for support on things um, uh, on various issues when it comes to its national security something we haven't seen in the past um is there a sense now of just how much india and the us were able to cooperate on issues like intelligence on issues like information sharing or or maps or data or other uh, areas of uh, of the conflict uh, that you could share with us Well I think that's true that the India China border crisis of last year did contribute to strengthening US India ties um and I think what what happened is it really demonstrated that the Uni- United States was a reliable partner on which India could count in times of need and as you mentioned the US provided both moral and material support to India uh this came in the form of 
uh, increased information and intelligence sharing, but also by expediting, you know, critical military equipment and supplies. For instance, the United States leased two MQ-9 armed predators that were delivered to India last summer. Uh, also, the U.S. expedited delivery of cold weather gear to support the deployment of the Indian military along the line of uh, actual control through the winter. So I do think that there was um, uh, a strengthening uh, of the U.S.-India relationship, but I would mention that those ties had already uh, been on a positive trajectory. I think, you know, that's one of the uh, things that as we reflect on uh, the former administration's foreign policies, uh, there will be a recognition that there was a great deal of progress on U.S.-India relations. And that will be seen as one of the high points, I think, of the Trump administration's foreign policy. Um, but certainly- Even so, even so uh, Lisa, this always been a, a sort of hesitation on New Delhi's part. Uh, even during this particular conflict, there was a point at which uh, President Trump actually said that he had spoken to Prime Minister Modi about the situation with China. He said uh, that he had even offered uh, any kind of help with mediation. And of course, from uh, New Delhi, there was complete silence on issues like that. Uh, do you think these kind of hesitations, this kind of shying away, if you like, from an openly talking about India-US ties in the face of this kind of aggression from China, do you think that still exists? Yes, but I don't think it's that surprising. Uh, look, when India looks at China, it sees a country that is still ahead of it militarily, economically. So India exercises a certain amount of caution when it's public about its statements on its relationship with the U.S. or the Quad, uh, for that matter. But I think the, the reality is that India quietly very much appreciates the assistance that the U.S. had provided and also really has gained a deeper appreciation for the importance of the Quad. Uh, you know, certainly the, the Quad has gained momentum over the last few years. And in particular, in the last year, we've seen meetings uh, at the foreign minister level. Uh, the Biden administration now is even talking about a potential summit level meeting, which would be truly historic. So I think that, uh, you know, after the pandemic, as well as after China's increasing political and military aggress aggressiveness um, in the Indo-Pacific region has shown all of the Quad countries the importance of the grouping in really maintaining that free, open, transparent order that has been there for uh, the last several decades. But some would say, in a sense, and you look at these issues now more closely at the CNAS, um, as you discuss Indo-Pacific strategy and you and, and you spoke about the Quad, uh, some have argued, and even in the aftermath of this announcement of disengagement, some have argued that actually the last year of the standoff between India and China has actually brought home India's real challenges, which are territorial, which are on land. Uh, and the idea that India, uh, the Indian army is now 
now going to be much more uh, driven to resource its uh, its positions along the line of actual control. And that might actually come at the cost of uh, India's maritime commitments and even its commitments to the Quad. Some speaking of the idea that India might soften on the Quad. Do you think the Quad could change its course now? Well, I certainly hope not. Uh, you know, as I indicated, and I, I think it's true that we've seen the salience and the importance of the Quad in this, uh, you know, following the pandemic and following China's aggressive actions over the last year. So I think it's in the four countries' strategic interest to maintain the quad. You know, we're not talking about an Asian NATO as China often fears. I, I don't think that is where the quad is headed, but certainly there's a need to coordinate not only on, uh, you know, potential military issues, but also on economic issues, how to deal with the economic fallout, the global economic fallout of the pandemic, how to meet the challenges of uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. This is something that India has been long concerned about, uh, even really before the U.S. Um, had had concerns about it. So I think the, the only way to, to deal with some of these challenges that we're seeing is for the four countries to coordinate and cooperate on their policies. So I think it, it, would, it would not be in India's own strategic interest to soften on the quad, as you say, um, I think that would uh, that would make it more complicated for India to deal with its land uh, boundary challenges that will continue from China. Right. Um, just staying with the Quad, there's also been some criticism about the idea. Yes, the Quad has increased its intensity of conversations. We saw the first standalone Quad ministerial meeting in Tokyo uh, just before the elections last year. Um, but even so, we haven't yet seen a joint statement come out uh, from any Quad meeting. Each of the four countries, Japan, Australia, the US and India, uh, put out their own readouts, their own statements. We haven't seen really a kind of coming together on even things like common goals. Uh, former US Secretary of State uh, Pompeo spoke about the Quad as a, as a sort of instrument in countering and containing China. That's not something that uh, India or even the other partners uh, seem to have echoed. Uh, there does seem to be a sense that while uh, India particularly is pushing for the Quad to be uh, a, a loose coalition uh, that is not aimed as a kind of strategy, that the U.S. is pushing in the opposite directions. Do you think that could hurt the Quad? Well, I think there, there's always been um, a bit of tension uh, in how each of the countries perceives the Quad and what its agenda and focus should be. And, you know, there has been efforts to have a meeting of the uh, defense ministers, uh, the Quad defense ministers. That has not happened yet. Uh, so there certainly are going to be differences in what what areas of focus uh, each country will look at, um, but I think you know broadly speaking, again, I would I would say it's imperative that the Quad forges a united front that um, you know they look at uh, how they can encourage uh, a free and open, transparent. Uh, region. And they can only do that working together, pooling their resources, um, you know, being able to uh, uh, project their influence in their particular areas of strength. 
And so I think it, it, it becomes imperative that they work together. And there's always going to be a certain amount of tension. I acknowledge that. Um, and I think most of that tension really is in what is said and done, you know, publicly and what is, uh, you know, not maybe discussed, but, but, uh, is, are actually actions that they can take together. Uh, so I think it's, it's important that India invited Australia to participate in the Malabar, uh, exercises, the naval exercises this past fall. And that does show, uh, you know, a certain openness to, to working through the quad, uh, when India sees it's in its own interest, but there there may be some, you know, ups and downs. Uh, it may not be a straight path that the Quad follows. And as you say, that you know, there may be more of a coming around certain issues rather than you know having these um, joint statements issued or you know public agendas uh, that are issued. I, I think it'll, it'll it'll remain a low key affair in terms of its public profile, but that's not to say that there won't be important action and coordination happening behind the scenes. And one more place where the Quad seems to have some unfulfilled potential, if you like, was the idea that the Quad could get together and provide uh, countries of the Indo-Pacific, which of course includes South Asian countries like Sri Lanka, the Maldives, Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar and others, uh, and act- actually offer them uh, credible, sustainable, transparent alternatives for financing uh, their infrastructure. There was this, this sense of a, a blue dot network, but in in real terms, we haven't really seen the Quad being able to come together and pr- provide that kind of uh, uh, alternative just yet. We haven't seen money being really put where the Quad's uh, intentions seem to be. Do you think that will change? Uh, well, I, again, I think that uh, we, we probably will see a strengthening of the Quad, a fleshing out of, of the agenda, and you know, a pooling of resources and looking at how the countries can work together to offer alternatives to these countries, both in Southeast Asia and South Asia, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we've already seen some cooperation among uh, India and Japan. Um, on the one hand, uh, also there has been efforts to bring together a uh, supply chain initiative between Australia, India, and Japan, um, looking at um, securing or making more resilient uh, supply chains in the region. So I think that this work will uh, continue. Uh, I think, you know, perhaps with the new administration, uh, they're still getting their bearings. But I think, you know, the, the new Biden administration has made clear that it values the Quad, prioritizes the Quad. It, the Quad was mentioned in the first phone call between President Biden and Prime Minister Modi. So I think, you know, this gives an indication that uh, at least the Biden administration prioritizes this grouping and, and will be pushing it forward. Interesting, because uh, Mr. Biden's uh, conversation with Mr. Modi, we saw the White House put a readout that mentioned the Quad, uh, but the Quad was not mentioned on the Indian side. But it does bring me to my next question, which is what are some of the early indicators uh, that you are seeing 
coming out of the Biden administrations that will tell us how India-US ties will fare. There were so many parts to the relationship. And of course, during um, the uh, Mr. Trump's administration, we did see ties come closer on a political level. We saw them come closer in terms of defense cooperation, in terms of strategic cooperation. Perhaps trade was one area where we didn't see much uh, headway. Where do you think the Indo-US relationship under the Biden administration will head? Great. Thank you for that question. I just wanted to add one more point on the quad before we leave it. And, I, you know, again, coming back to this idea that it, it may ebb and flow in terms of India's emphasis with its foreign policy. And perhaps, you know, as India is trying to conclude this disengagement plan with China, that was not the opportune time to mention the quad. Perhaps that's one reason it was not mentioned in the readout of the Modi-Biden call. Uh, but okay, in terms of your question on where do we see India-US ties headed um, under the Biden administration, I certainly I think we'll we'll see a re-emphasis on climate cooperation um, and perhaps more coordination on uh, climate-friendly energy technologies. Uh, a lot of these things were pursued during the Obama administration. I think you'll see, you know, that aspect of the relationship revived uh, for sure. Um, you know, there may be some some areas of uh, tension that we did not see so much in the previous administration. Um, for instance, uh, any threat to civil liberties, uh, particularly of the Muslim minority. I, I think the Biden team would be more likely to publicly address any potential violations of civil liberties if they arise. And of course, uh, the Trump administration avoided uh, addressing these domestic issues. Um, uh, another uh, point of, of tension that could arise uh, fairly quickly is the Russian sale of the S-400 to India. This this could become a, a major irritant for the relationship. Uh, of course, the Trump administration had, had warned India that following through with the S-400 purchase could make it more difficult for the U.S. to sell sophisticated defense equipment to India in the future. And this may be something that the Biden administration uh, has to consider early on uh, in dealing with India. Um, so, you know, I think the, broadly speaking, uh, you know, President Biden has has always championed the India-U.S. relationship. He was a strong supporter early on of the U.S.-India civil nuclear deal going back, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And it's remained a, a major priority for him uh, over the last couple of decades. So I would expect to see a, a continuation um, in those relations with maybe a couple of areas of friction uh, that we didn't see uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, interesting, those two areas being the question of civil liberties and human rights uh, violations, allegations, as well as the S-400. Now, the S-400 decision uh, could be, as you pointed out, pretty uh, uh, soon, given that uh, the sanctions actually do kick in when uh, a country either pays up or when the country takes delivery 
of those weapon systems as India is expected to do in 2021. Uh, given the uh, the history, the sanctions already put against China, as well as uh, now more recently Turkey, do you see any options by which the Biden administration could avoid or give give a waiver to India on the Katsa sanctions? Well, certainly that's uh, one of the options that they will look at is the national security waiver. And I think, you know, much of that will depend on where the Congress is. And, uh, you know, certainly there are a lot of uh, supporters of the India-U.S. relation in the U.S. Congress. But as you said, you know, it was clear uh, the, the sanctions on Turkey uh, related to the F-35. Now, of course, that's not an issue, the F-35 with India, but there is still that uh, lingering sense that this could make it more difficult for the U.S. in the future uh, to con- continue this robust uh, defense relationship with India. And I think it's something India needs to consider as well, that, uh, you know, is is this really the direction that it, it needs to move in? Um, so I think that, you know, w- we'll see a, a full weighing of the issues. Um, and, you know, there, there is um, a recognition that, you know, India needs to protect itself and this could be important for uh, protecting itself against China. And, and we, the, the reasons for that have become very clear over the last year to everyone. And so it's going, it's going to be a tough issue uh, for the, the Biden administration uh, to deal with. Right. Um, if I could come to the, the issue that uh, uh, that actually brought you to Delhi quite often in your role at the NSC, uh, and that is Afghanistan. You were, of course, working closely with the U.S. Special Envoy Zalmay Khalilzad. Ambassador Khalilzad, in an interview to the Hindu at the time, had spoken of the, of, uh, of the need he felt for India to open talks with the Taliban as well, something India has not yet uh, at least publicly done. What kind of a role uh, for India in Afghanistan did you really see? Uh, was it part of not just being part of the reconciliation? Was there ever talks of Indian boots on the ground in Afghanistan? What is the role for India in that uh, um, in Afghanistan, given that the original Trumpian South Asian strategy paper actually said that India would be uh, would have an enhanced role there? Well, I don't think there was ever talk of India having boots on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, I think there was recognition that this would uh, just make the the situation a lot worse, deepen the the war there, uh, given the the, the uh, provocations to to the Pakistanis. But I think the enhanced role that was envisioned in the South Asia strategy when it was released in 2017 was more of an economic, political role, uh, a supportive role for the the Afghan government, um, maybe the security forces in terms of training, equipment. Um, so I think, you know, that, that was the vision. Um, however, I think in the last two years since uh, uh, the negotiations with the Taliban started, that there's been some skepticism from from India uh, that the Taliban would actually adhere uh, to any counterterrorism or other commitments made in the agreement. And I think some of India's skepticism is now bearing out. So I think for the last couple of years, India has taken a sort of wait and see approach. They haven't been directly critical of the U.S. Taliban talks, but I think they've certainly been wary 
that the Taliban would would actually engage in a genuine peace process and uphold uh, any of those commitments. Um, but I, I would just say one last thing, and that's that India's role will become increasingly important if the U.S. you know draws down further, uh, draws down its troop presence further. Um, you know, I think you know India probably is considering. Uh, policies or contingencies that it may have to uh, engage in, whether, you know, it looks something like their 1990s policy in Afghanistan when they worked with other regional powers like Russia, like Iran, uh, to support anti-Taliban forces. I'm sure all of this is being considered uh, by India at this time of uncertainty. And one of the reasons for the big concerns is what the role of Pakistan is going to be if the Taliban is going to come in some kind of a strengthened position in Kabul, in the power structures over there. Um, When it comes to cross-border terrorism coming from Pakistan, you've, of course, um, uh, uh, worked with India and the Trump administration worked quite closely with India when it came to measures like the, the gray listing at the Financial Action Task Force. In fact, we're expecting a decision perhaps on uh, on Pakistan very shortly. Uh, do you think that those efforts bore fruit? Do you think that the threat of cross-border terrorism emanating from Pakistan, groups like the Lashkar-e-Toyba, uh, the Jaish-e-Mohammed, has in any way reduced? Well, I think that, you know, given the the decision to withhold um, large-scale military assistance to Pakistan, uh, first of all, it showed that, you know, the sky wasn't going to fall. That that was the argument that, uh, you know, if the U.S. were to withdraw this assistance, that somehow Pakistan would cut off all, uh, you know, ground lines of communication into Afghanistan, the... the um, the bilateral partnership would, you know, completely uh, explode. And, and that, of course, did not happen. Now, whether it's encouraged better behavior from Pakistan on the terrorism militant front, I would say slightly, uh, certainly not as much as people had had hoped or expected. Um, you know, we still see that these groups exist, but we have seen a willingness to you know, fall through on more prosecutions to, um, you know, rein in the rhetoric uh, slightly. Uh, so I would say there have been slight improvements. And I would also say that the Pakistan has taken some steps to support the Afghanistan peace process. They released Mullah Berater on the request of Ambassador Khalilzad. Uh, they have weighed in at critical times to keep the Taliban in the talks with the U.S., uh, so that that's positive. Um, do we need to see Pakistan do more? Of course, we need to see them use their leverage with the Taliban to reduce violence, um, to back away from this idea that they're going to reestablish this Islamic emirate. Um, so, you know, Pakistan has an important role to play. They want to get off on the right foot with the Biden administration. So I think it's important that the Biden administration will condition their bilateral relationship with Pakistan on whether or not Pakistan helps with the peace process in Afghanistan. Right. So that's, that's uh, in a sense, the give and take that is likely to be seen in the next few months, particularly. I, I, I do have a lot of questions, Lisa, but we are running short of time. So I want to ask you this about the time you spent in the Trump administration. Uh, his, the effect, the Trump effect, if you like, 
on U.S. foreign policy was felt worldwide, whether it was um, the withdrawal of the U.S. from various multilateral agencies like the U.N., uh, the WHO, UNESCO, the Human Rights Council, all measures that are being reversed if you look, by uh, the Biden administration or the withdrawal from the climate change agreement or the JCPOA with Iran. Uh, there were other effects that we saw around the world when it came uh, to Mr. Trump's uh, decisions uh, to uh, to uh, deal with his uh, allies in a certain way. Uh, as you pointed out, the India-U.S. relationship probably did better than others. But my question really is, do you think the Trump effect is lasting? So many talk about the idea that Mr. Trump might be out of office, but Trumpism will remain in a sense. I think there is some concern on that front. Uh, first of all, I would say, you know, there are some aspects of Trump's foreign policy that the Biden team would probably want to preserve and build upon. And as I ent- uh, mentioned earlier, the India-U.S. relationship, the momentum of the Quad certainly falls in that category. However, if you look at Europe and NATO, I think uh, the Trump administration did do damage to our relationships there, and it will take time to rebuild trust from our European friends. Uh, They fear, as you said, that Trumpism and this whole idea of America first is still alive and well in the United States. Uh, So I think the, the Biden team has its work cut out for them to restore faith in the United States key alliances and partnerships, especially in Europe. Um, I think the conclusion of the EU-China investment treaty in late December was a signal that even though Europe welcomes Biden's win, they are—they um, still don't feel they can count on the United States to the degree that they have in the past. Uh, and I, I, th- I do think this would be one of the most damaging legacies of the Trump foreign policy. Uh, so we'll see a, a new focus by the Biden team Um, to rebuilding the transatlantic partnership on a range of issues, whether it be climate change uh, or Afghanistan, and hopefully China as well. All right. When you when you speak about the impact on China, we saw Mr. Trump uh, with a very vocally uh, sort of uh, tough position on China. Uh, But even so, the kind of aggressive moves we've seen from China in the last few years, not just at the LAC and the South China Sea, uh, the wolf warriors that we saw coming uh, from Beijing. Do you think the Biden administration is really going to be able to effectively handle those? Well, I think that what we're seeing in the early days of the Biden administration is that they will also adopt this competitive approach to China, uh, President Biden has has been clear on that that uh, you know there's going to be competition, and the U.S. is ready uh, for that competition. But he's also made clear this doesn't need to turn into conflict, and so we'll see differences in the tactics. Uh, the Trump administration was very focused on uh, delisting uh, Chinese uh, or delisting companies. Uh, Chinese companies and you know not allowing U.S. companies to interact uh, with those companies. We we may see some differences in those policies, but I think the overall strategic assumptions and the overall strategic approach to China will largely remain the same. All right, um, these are all spaces we are all going to watch very closely. But for the moment, Lisa Curtis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.